turn to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. And we're going to wrap up tonight what we started last week. And I do want to encourage you to be in prayer uh, for Brother John and Miss Jamie. Brother John was originally scheduled uh, to be with us this evening, um, but was unable to uh, because of some circumstances. And so he and I talked this morning and uh, he had to cancel. And so just be in prayer for them. And uh, we'll update you on all of that another time. But he did ask tonight for us to be in prayer for him. And so we encourage you to do that. If you have not met him or Miss Jamie, uh, we're going to try our best to try to get them here. Uh, but right now, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge um, with Miss Jamie uh, traveling, he said. And so just continue to be in prayer for them uh, and her health and all of that. Uh, and he did say uh, just to continue to update the church concerning that. And so she needs our prayers tonight. We'll pray dismissing our service tonight for them. Uh, but he did want to be here, was unable to. And so you're stuck with me tonight as we wrap up Psalm 57, okay? Psalm 57, let's jump right into it. We're not going to be real long tonight, but I want to catch you up to speed if you were not here last week. Psalm 57 is one of those psalms where if we're not careful, we go to one verse in this psalm and we say, I know Psalm 57. No, sometimes we know a verse in one of these psalms, but we don't really know the psalm. We don't know what's going on sometimes. We know we, we take great joy in certain verses. And if we're not careful, we let ourselves get to the point where we only want to focus on one little small part of certain passages of Scripture. But when you really get the overview and you really dig a little deeper into it, you begin to realize that there's more to that. There's more to that passage of Scripture. There's more to that psalm. And then all of a sudden, that one verse that you've been emphasizing begins to really open up to you. So let's really dig a little bit deeper this evening as we kind of share a little bit of what was taking place in Psalm 57. Notice here for just a few moments, this psalm, as you begin to think about, as we dealt with last week, David's cry in verses 1 through 3. David is crying out. This is not one of those cries where it's just kind of a, a gradual cry or, you know, kind of like a whine or anything like this. He's, he's needing the Lord to intervene. He uses strong, strong statements like this as he says, Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me. He is emphasizing at the very beginning of this psalm, Lord, I need your mercy right this very moment. He goes on in verse number 1 and shares those words, For my soul trusteth in thee, yea, Notice these words, in the shadow of thy wings, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Now that word calamities is a, it's not a gentle word. It's a serious word. These circumstances are not pleasant. And we begin to see that that statement in the shadow of thy wings begins to help us to see his affection, God's affection, God's protection and God's direction in those words. And tonight, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what decisions you have to make. I don't know if you're battling some uncertain uh, days ahead or whatever the case might be. But as you begin to think about getting out from under those circumstances and you rest in the Lord, you begin to find that he is a very affectionate God. He loves us. You find that he is a, a God that desires to direct us and to guide us and to protect us and all of that. And that statement, in the shadow of thy wings, begins to reveal each of those three things. That he is an affectionate God, that he is a protecting God, and that he is a God that desires to guide us and direct us. And so, in David's cry, we see those words. We see a couple of things. In verse number one, we dealt with this last week. He is crying out for the Lord to hide him. In verse number two, we begin to see that he is crying out, Lord, hear me. As he says, I will cry unto God the most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. And we began to deal with that statement, performeth all things for me. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we begin to think, and we won't admit this, but sometimes we begin to think that God has made a mistake. 
God hasn't made any mistakes, not a single mistake in any one of our lives. Everything that he has allowed to take place and everything that he has designed to take place in our lives. And sometimes we will enter into a season of difficulty that we have chosen to enter into that God never intended for us to enter into. You see, there's a difference. Everything that God does, it's always perfect. And that statement performeth, it means to bring to an end, to complete, to perfect. Philippians 1, six says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord's not in the business of doing things half-hearted. He's not in the business of doing things halfway and saying, well, we'll just leave it. We'll figure it out another time. You know, if you were to walk over in that uh, office building right this very moment, there are some projects taking place all across this property. And as you walk into the office building, you'll walk into a room that has half of the flooring laid and the other half is still just waiting. Well, it very well could be sometimes where in, in our lives where as you begin to relate this, there are sometimes whenever we do jobs or we do things and we don't finish the task. We say, oh, we'll get around to that another time. You ever been, you know, showing someone your house and, and let's just say, you know, you're walking through the house and there's something that is noticeably unfinished and someone says, hey, what, what's going on there? And you say, well, I, st- I started that a long time ago. I just never got around to finishing it, right? Well, the Lord doesn't work that way. The Lord desires that perfecting work to take place in our lives. And so as he is beginning to sanctify us and to bring us along, Philippians 1, 6 reminds us of this. And the psalmist is aware of this as he says, I will cry unto God, most high unto God, that performeth all things for me. Lord, what you're doing, I'm leaving in your hands. So he says, Lord, hide me in verse 1. Lord, hear me in verse 2. And then, Lord, help me as he says, he shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Now, that statement, swallow me up, it speaks of to gasp, to pant, to breathe heavily, to thirst for blood or devour, to crust or trample to pieces. And as you continue walking on down, you begin to see the seriousness of this situation that David is in. Because in verses 4, 5, and 6, he begins to give us a little bit of insight into these enemies, if you would, those who are at him as he is on the flee. In verse number four, he says, my soul is among lions. As we dealt with this last week, lions are not like puppies. They're not gentle. Uh, You know, we we see a lot of videos sometimes of lions, and there are some of these guys who are uh, working with lions, and you'll occasionally see a lion that runs up to someone who is, you know, they're familiar with, they're working with, and we think, oh man, that would be a wonderful job. Then you see the other side of the lion. Where the lion doesn't know who you are and the lion sees you. You know, I was watching a video, this was a couple of weeks ago, and I saw there was a little boy and he was at the zoo and he was standing in, in front of a, a lion's den, if you would, and it was a window right there. And the boy turns for just one second and you see that lion run all the way across that little field as quickly as he can and pounce on that window hoping that he was going to get that child. See, lions are not gentle. And so as you begin to see what David is saying here in verse number four, he says, my soul is among lions, those who would devour me, those who would destroy me. He says, and I lie even among them that are set on fire. David is feeling as though he is laying in a field and that the fire is going to consume him. David, you think about his life, you think about this season of his life being on the run from Saul. And in a few minutes, we come back to where we finished last week and where David begins to relate. And he says, the enemy is trying to kill me. The enemy is trying to destroy me. But the enemy, because of their lack of awareness, has put themselves in danger. 
If you're familiar with this story, if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, you know that Saul is trying to kill David. In the midst of trying to kill David, there are two opportunities that David is given to take the life of Saul. But he chooses not to. And as you begin to think about that, David is entering into this serious situation. And so we see David's cry. We see David's crisis. His crisis is what we dealt with last week. And notice a couple of things before we get to verse number 7 where we will conclude tonight. He goes on in verse number 4 and says, Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. Now he begins to give some insight into their teeth and into their tongue. And you begin to think about that, two of the, the sharpest things within the Christian life, one of the most dangerous things, James goes on later to address this, is the tongue and the danger of the tongue. Uh, we've heard the statement for years, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt. And you begin to think about how false that is. Some of you have walked through the doors of the church right this very moment, and the things that people say about you or to you, they pierce your heart, they hurt. And oftentimes you begin to think about that. Sometimes it's an enemy, someone that doesn't like you. And those words sometimes don't bother you. Why? Because, you know what, I wouldn't take advice from them, so why would I worry about what they have to say about me? Uh, But those words that you hear from someone who you love deeply, who you care about. Psalm 55, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking, and in that psalm, we begin to realize the psalmist says, it was not an enemy, one of my own. It was a friend. It was someone that, that we, 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 we praised the Lord together. We rejoiced in the blessings of God together. We, we, we took great countenance together and all of the blessings of God. It was a friend. It was not an enemy, but it was one of my own. You see, and so as you come to Psalm 57 now, he begins to address that tongue again and, and the teeth and how sharp those things were. If I could share with you tonight, uh, you know, I, I have talked to... Uh, Kelly about this. I've talked to many other individuals. I've talked to my brother-in-laws. I've talked to my friends. I've talked to family. And there, there comes a time in your life and in general as a, a Christian where you truly have to determine that you're not going to do things just because you want to one, you wonder what man is going to say about you. That's come a time when you realize, you know what, it, it doesn't matter what they have to say. My life is given to the Lord, so as I serve the Lord, can I share with you, there's going to be times whenever somebody says something ugly about you. And here's the reality of it. When you die to self, it's much easier to say, you know what, I don't care. Because I'm not doing it for them, I'm doing it for him. You see, and so David understood this later on in his life. You go and you think about Paul, and Paul understood this as he was emphasizing those things, as he was going to people. He didn't ask for things. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for housing. He didn't ask for food. He just wanted to serve the Lord. And there has to come a time in every single one of our lives where we die to self to such a point where we say, you know what, what I do is not dependent on what man is going to say. Only, Lord, what dost thou say? And we begin to realize that that begins to give such peace. When you die to self and you realize, you know what? I'm never going to please man. There's always going to be a problem. One of the greatest blessings we have, and this is a weird thing to say, but COVID was in a lot of ways a blessing for a lot of people. Here's why I say that. COVID began to put some things into perspective. COVID began to reveal what really is important. I believe there are a lot of families that were put together based on the testimonies I've heard. 
There were a lot of churches that realized, you know what, we've been forsaking the assembling of ourselves. There have been some times whenever we've walked through the doors of the church, and yeah, our, our presence as far as we were there present, but our minds and our hearts were so far distant and all that. All of a sudden, you remove the church for just a little while. You remove all of the, the blessings of meeting together for just a little while, and then you begin to realize how much you loved that. You begin to realize how much you needed that. I was listening to a preacher today, and only for about two or three minutes. I didn't have much time, but I was listening to him, and he was talking. And he, he made the statement, you remember the days when everything was fresh and anew to you? When you longed to walk in the doors of the church and to hear the choir sing and to hold the hymnal and open the Word of God and to, to get something from the Word of God, and you actually, get this now, enjoyed it. You enjoyed it. It wasn't a burden to sit there. It wasn't drudgery to sit there. It wasn't something that you were annoyed that you had to go to church. It wasn't something, you know, you think about those times in certain times of our lives and in certain seasons where there's a storm coming. And it's a shame that far too many Christians get excited when a snowstorm comes into town and the church is canceled. We say, oh, yeah, day off. No, hold up. You're missing an opportunity. We take great joy in those things. You remember the days when you actually longed to go to the house of God. You enjoyed it. Not only did you enjoy the presence of God's people and being in the presence of God and meeting with Him, but you enjoyed those times whenever God was dealing with you and convicting you and bringing you along because you understood that that sanctification process was essential to your life. Now, in our, our modern day and where we're at, our society and everything, is we almost look at meeting together as God's people as annoyance, as frustration. As why do I have to? And so you begin to think about all of those many things within our lives. And as you come to the end of yourself, you'll begin to realize that, you know what? The tongue of man is always going to be deceitful. It's always going to be hurtful. God's, warn, God's word warns us of that. So there's two things to keep in mind. Number one, how are you using your tongue tonight? Is your tongue being used in such a way where there are people that are sitting there saying, you know what, that person has hurt me, and so now they're avoiding you. And now they're saying, I don't want to be around them because every time I'm around them, there's always something they're saying that's not edifying. Or are you using your, your tongue for the glory of God and it's used in such a sweet countenance way, if you would. You know, there, there are people that I have met many, many times that when you get into their presence and you begin to think about the conversations, you begin to think about the things that they have to say, they're just always uplifting people. And it's contagious. Uh, there's something special about that. There's something that is uh, pleasant about those things. And so notice the contrast here of everything pleasant concerning the tongue. And then in verse number four, what he says, whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. There's a difference. In Psalm 55, we looked at the tongue of one who is a friend that hurt them. In Psalm 57, it's the tongue of the enemy. You see, the tongue of the enemy hurts, but it's expected. The tongue of the friend it stings. You don't expect it. You see, in the house of God, in the church, you begin to realize how important our tongues are. Are we edifying each other? Are we, are we allowing the Lord to use our tongue to be a blessing to our church family and be a blessing to each other? Verse number five, be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit for me. Here it is. Into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. 
This is one of those aha situations. This is one of those situations where David is on the run, and David is running from Saul. Saul has, has digged a pit for David. Saul is trying to kill David. And in the midst of all that, Saul has put his own life in harm's way. I shared the, the story of growing up and going into those houses and they were being built and we would do airsoft wars and we would be going at each other and I would pin someone in, a, in, in the downstairs area, but as I was pinning someone else down, I was exposing myself to three others. One of the most painful things ever happening to me happened whenever I was doing those airsoft wars and I remember whenever we did those airsoft wars, I didn't have one of the guns. So the Farney family, they, I mean, they, they invested in these things. And you know how this goes. Whenever you're playing with your friends, you always take the best gun, don't you? And what do you give your friends that don't have anything? You just give it to them out of pity. You give them the little pistol that does nothing, right? And I remember playing with the Farneys, and they'd have, you know, all of these nice guns that would shoot, you know, up to 50 and 60 feet, and they'd give me this little 20, 20 yard or 20 feet foot pistol that would, you know, shoot. And before it even gets to them, it's just dropping already, you know? Now, I remember one of the most painful things. We wore goggles and had the protection and everything, but we didn't have all of the headgear. And I remember they shot me one time, and I had one of them things just lodged in my cheek. And it hit me so hard, my, and my entire cheekbone was swollen. And I remember in that time that I had pinned one of them, but I exposed myself to two or three of them. It's exactly what is taking place here. Saul is trying to pin David. In the midst of all of that, David is given an opportunity as Saul exposes himself. So in verse number 6, he highlights this. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. Selah. So we see leading up to verse number 7. And David was willing to trust the Lord in the midst of all of his trouble, his trial, everything that he's going through. He, he, this is not a, a good thing. In verse number 6, we begin to see the traps that were laid. But now we come to verse number 7 and we see David's triumph. So notice with me number 3, if you would, tonight as we close, we see David's confidence here. We've seen in verses 1 through 3, David's cry. Verse 4 through 6, David's crisis. But now we close tonight with David's confidence. Notice this one word that is found as he says this statement, My heart is fixed. Tonight, can I share with you that you are always, until eternity comes, you will face trials. You will face troubles. Your circumstances will not always be pleasant. But oh, what the difference a fixed heart on God makes. You see, when your heart is fixed on the Lord, all of a sudden you begin to realize that though those circumstances were large, your God is bigger, so now those circumstances are small. And though those troubles are great, those troubles might be great in your eyes, but they're small in God's eyes. And so as your heart is fixed on God, you release all of those troubles to Him and you allow Him to take all of that hurt and all of that pain and all of those troubles off of your shoulders. The burden is now relieved and you begin to see that those troubles are not as big as you thought they were. Why? Because your heart is fixed on God. Notice that this word fixed means. It speaks of being established. It speaks of being steadfast, of being ready, of being prepared, if you would. And so tonight, we begin to highlight some of these things concerning having a fixed heart because I believe it's every one of our desire tonight that we would find ourselves in the midst of trouble, in the midst of trials, whatever you're facing, that your heart would be fixed on guard so that you would not have so much worry, so much concern 
about what you don't have control over anyways. I remember in Bible college, Brother Dwayne Hickman, who was my coach, I've shared much about him and the influence that he had, would pour into us. And he would harp on this all the time. Because you know this whenever you're playing sports, whenever something is called, it's always the referee's fault, right? If you're watching sports right now, then you've seen some of those things. And as soon as the whistle is blown, the players are doing this right here. And I remember one time we had fallen for that trap and there was a game. And right after the game, our coach pulled us aside and we were meeting in the locker room and he just wore us out. And this is what he said. He said, you can't control when the whistle is blown. And he began to relate that, and he said, there are going to be times whenever things in life are out of your control. It does you no good to pout. It does you no good to throw your hands up. It does no good to gripe about it. It does no good. To, he said, only control what you can control. He said, you can't control what is taking place, but he said, you can control how you go about it. He, he said, you can control your attitude towards the situation. You can control how you move in the situation. You can control yourself. That is the only thing that you can control. You can't control the outcome. It's not your outcome. You can't control what is said about you or what is going on or whatever trouble you're facing, but you can control yourself. I remember those words never left my mind. I began to think about that. And you begin to think about this fixed heart, if you would. So how do you get this fixed heart? I want to share just a few things. I shared with them last week, just a couple, but I want to share some verses to encourage you tonight. Notice these eight things real quick, and then we'll conclude tonight in a word of prayer. Number one, recognize the presence of the Lord regardless of your circumstances. You want a fixed heart? You want the, the Lord to, to reveal himself to you? You don't want to focus on those circumstances and leave God out of it? Then regardless of your circumstances, recognize the presence of the Lord in your life. Isaiah 26, verse number 3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Philippians 1.20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Now look, in the book of Philippians, you're aware of this. Paul's circumstances are not great. I believe if we were to take a poll tonight and we were to say, hey, would you rather your circumstances right now or Paul's circumstances then? Every single one of us would say we want our circumstances right now. Paul was in prison. Paul, the smell of the prison was nasty. The nights that he spent were cold. It was just a terrible situation. And so we say, how did Paul endure those circumstances? How did he get through all of that? Because Paul stopped looking at his circumstances a long time ago and said, my eyes are fixed on Jesus. And you begin to realize the book of Philippians is a book of joy. You say, how did Paul find joy in prison? Because it wasn't the prison that was holding him captive. You see, as you begin to think about all of what was going on, he was in prison, but he said, hey, it doesn't matter because the Lord is still here. Hey, the gospel is still advancing. You're familiar. In the beginning of that book right there, Paul goes on to say, hey, there are those who are preaching with contention. There are those who are preaching a false gospel, but they don't even realize that the gospel is still advancing. Despite their efforts, God is still moving forward. And so in the midst of all of what he was going through, he recognized the presence of God 
And he says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. That word expectation in that verse speaks of the highest opinion, looking away from other interests to focus on one. And the one that Paul was focused on was Jesus. Number two, not only recognize the presence of the Lord regardless of your circumstances, but number two, remain steadfast and focused on Christ. Now, look, I understand tonight that some of these that I'm going to share with you are one of these one statements that we would say, well, that's easier said than done. I get that. And I'm not saying that it's easy to stay steadfast in the midst of uncertain circumstances because we all fight the flesh. But that's why it's so important in the Christian life. And you, you, you'll find that much of the Christian life and much of the preaching concerning what the Christian life is made of and the, the obedience that must be followed and why preachers harp on reading the Word of God and spending time in prayers because these are the basics. You see, these are the essentials. In the midst of uncertain circumstances, you don't need me to say something. You need God to say something to you. And you say, well, Lord, how am I going to hear a word from you? Get in the word of God and spend time in prayer, commune with him. And so as you find, it's much easier to stay steadfast when you're not searching for all of the solutions yourself. You're just saying, Lord, I'm looking to you. And all of a sudden it becomes easier. So you get in the word of God, you spend time with God, and you find there's so much relief there. There's so much peace there. Why? Because he is still faithful. And he reminds us of that. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's essential. So you say, hey, preacher, what do I need to do? Get in the word of God. Yeah, okay, I get that, but what, what, where's the big, ah, oh, you know, that moment? No, get in the word of God. Spend time in prayer. Be faithful to the Lord. Live the Christian life, if you would. Well, what's that? Well, get in the word of God. The Lord will bring you along. I don't know what a perfect Christian life is. All I know is a yielded life is what the Lord desires from us. It starts with getting in his word so he can reveal those things to us. Number three. Remove what weakens you spiritually. The Bible says in Colossians chapter number 3, verses 8 and 9, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Remove what weakens you spiritually. I remember getting saved at church camp. And I remember meeting with my pastor, who would be my father-in-law at one point. And I remember having those conversations, and all of a sudden, that discipleship process really began. And I remember my youth director, I remember my pastor, I remember other individuals in the church, and they began to encourage me to get rid of certain things. Well, what things would, would weaken me spiritually? Well, the, the words of the music that I listen to. I shared this last week with you, but I believe it's so, so important. A man by the name of Ja Moran, who is an up-and-coming NBA All-Star, right this very moment, just recently got himself into some trouble because of the way that he was acting and was possessing a gun, and it was illegal, and there's certain guidelines in the NBA, and all these many things. Well, he began to get himself in a lot of trouble. He was suspended for a time. I can't remember the name of the individual who was talking, but it was some rapper who came out and was talking, and he said, very simply in an interview, he said, I believe the music that John Morant listens to is impacting and influencing the way that he lives, his lifestyle. And the music that he was specifically speaking of was not 
Amazing grace. That wasn't it. It was this rap music that is filthy. It was music that was not honoring to God all at all. It was music that came across that if you lived a certain way, you were cool. And he began to find out rather quickly that it's not cool to get yourself in that much trouble. And he began to face criticism. And this rapper came out and said, I truly believe that the music that he's listening to is affecting the way that he lives. Can I share with you that whenever a preacher is preaching or whether a family is is encouraging you to put good godly music in your home, it's not just a suggestion because we think that that is the right thing to do. No, it's something that we know will impact you in the right way to live for the Lord. Look, I ride to school every day with my son and we listen to music. Music is a major part of my life. We listen to music. And my son is beginning to learn that the things that he is singing, he has questions about now. And so he's asking certain questions about, hey, what does that mean, Dad? What does he mean when he says this? And he's asking those questions about good, godly music that we're listening to. And can I share with you, it's a great way to disciple your children. It's a great way to begin to honestly, in a lot of ways, convict yourself that, you know what? I don't even know what that means. So I need to dig a little deeper. You begin to realize the importance of the things you're listening to. The conversations you're having. Look, noticing these verses, what he says. But now you also put off all these things. Anger. Well, anger ain't going to help you in the Christian life. I was meeting with my, my brother and sister-in-law. My brother just recently found out that he's having his first child, and it's a boy. And uh, we were talking for a little while, and and uh, we were we were just, you know, jabbing each other here and there. What are brothers for? You know, we, we just cut up. We have a good time. We make fun of each other. That's That's one of the joys of having a brother. And uh, we were talking about that time whenever he punched a window and, uh, because he was mad. And I remember whenever we were kids, I remember my stepdad just looking at him like he was crazy and said, what good did that do? Can I share with you, there are times whenever I feel as though the Holy Spirit deals with every single one of us myself included, whenever we get so angry, we get so bitter about something, we get so frustrated about something, we get so uh, uh, caught up in something, when the the Lord and the Holy Spirit says, what good is that doing? What good does that filthy conversation do? Hey, what good does it do for you to be bitter at your brother or sister in Christ? Hey, what good does it do for you to be so angry that you live a certain way and you do things and you react a certain way? You ever had someone say something so hurtful, and as it comes out of their mouth, they say, I didn't mean that. The truth of the matter is, they did mean it, they just didn't mean for it to come out. You see, what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what's on the heart. And so all of a sudden, we begin to realize we need to remove those things that weaken us. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's things we're watching, the things we're listening to, the conversations we're having, the places we're going. There's spirit about us. We need to remove it. Number four, resist temptations. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter number 5, verses 8 and 9, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion. There it is again, that, that lion. Not gentle, not a little puppy, not a little kitten. A roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resisteth steadfast. In the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Resist temptations. Daniel chapter number 1, verse number 8. We were here last night in evening school of the Bible. 
But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I know, here it is again. Easier said than done. But I'll tell you, the longer you resist certain things, the easier it becomes because it becomes just natural as you yield your life to the Lord and you live and you desire to be a spirit-filled Christian. Much easier to resist those temptations. I don't have a temptation to say curse words like I used to. I don't have, well, when I stub my toe, maybe. No, I don't have, I don't have those, those temptations. I don't have a temptation to, to listen to the, the filthy, I mean, just filthy music that I listened to growing up. Why? Because I yielded those things to the Lord. I gave those things to the Lord in such a way where it's not a temptation any longer. But here's the danger. The devil knows what tempts you. So why do we live a yielded life and a life that is filled with the Spirit? Well, because the devil knows when to attack. You leave a little crack, he's going to open that crack. Number five, be ready to stand alone. As we shared this last week, it's not the popular thing all the time. Taking a stand for Christ, there's there's a great deal of adversity before you as you decide, Lord, I want to stand for you. Those that you thought were with you sometimes will all of a sudden criticize you. Those who all of a sudden you knew were against you will then all of a sudden give a lot more effort because that's, that's just too far. So be ready to stand alone. Number six, seek to be revived in your life from the ruts. A dangerous place is to live in the rut. Miserable. The Lord never intended for us to live a miserable life. So this statement that is made, my heart is fixed, oh God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and get prayer. I don't see a rut there. I see he's saying, I don't want to be there. I don't want to harp on these things. Lord, my eyes are fixed on you. Number seven, refuse to quit. Refuse to quit. We're living in a generation where when it gets tough, you just quit. You you take it as far as you want with with. Uh, athletics or whatever the case might be we are seeing in sports you've got all this transfer portal stuff and all these why because adversity is not something that is looked at anymore hey if i'm not going to do this i just want to quit well then what does it bleed into it bleeds into life it bleeds into to life where all of a sudden you don't like what you're getting so you just quit i remember i was talking just this past week with a gentleman a stranger and we were talking, and he was talking about his upbringing. He said, I was, just, I was just brought up a little bit different. He said, my son, who, who is uh, 16 years old, was talking to me, and he, 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 wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't starting on the football team, and so he, he came to Daddy one day. And he was complaining to Daddy to, for Daddy to go and talk to the coach. He said, I looked at my 16-year-old son, and I said, you, you expect me to go and talk to your coach because you don't like the outcome that you've received? He said, nah, work at it. Work for it. You want to start? Put in the work. You want to start? Take the criticism and do what you're supposed to do. I I was sitting back. I was thinking, I like you. I think we're friends now. I think we're pals. I like that. I like that there is a, a work ethic being instilled. Why? Because when the time gets tough, he won't quit. You see, in the Christian life, we have to have that determination that we're not going to quit. Look, if you are basing whether or not you're going to serve God, whether the times are good or not, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. You see, he's worthy even if times get tough and even if times get difficult, he's still worthy. 
You know, I look back and and I see the many times in my life whenever I could have easily quit, but I saw that there was something ahead if I just put in the work. And look, they always turned out to be the best for me. I ain't always gotten the right result, but I've learned lessons through this. Refuse to quit. Number eight, we'll be done with this little section here. Notice what he says in verse number seven. Now, look, this is a difficult circumstance. This is a hard situation that he's found himself in. He says, my heart is fixed, oh God, my heart is fixed. Notice these words. I will sing and give praise. Notice verse number nine. I will praise thee. Notice verse number nine again in the middle. I will sing unto thee among the nations. Verse number 11, be thou exalted. Number eight, notice this if you would. Learn to rejoice in the Lord regardless of the situations in life. Not everything's always going to be easy. It's not always going to be pleasant. But God is still good. You go back and you think about those words of that song, God's been good. Times replay in my life. I begin to think back on those times and the good times, the bad times, the pleasant times, the unpleasant times. And I begin to realize that it comes to that chorus, God's been good. It hasn't always worked out the way I wanted it to, but that doesn't mean that God's not good. No, he's still good. And so notice these three things tonight that are very powerful as we close this evening. In this portion of scripture, as we close in verse number seven on down, he says, my heart is fixed. Oh God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. There are three things that we begin to realize about the confidence that he had in the Lord. His confidence in God led him to wait on the Lord. You see, when you are resting in the Lord, you begin to realize that you don't have to rush anything. You begin to realize that that the Lord is working on your behalf, that as you rest in Him, He will work everything out. And so He goes on in verse number 7, My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Awake up my glory, awake sultry and harp. I myself will awake early. We see His confidence. That it was willing in His life to help Him to wait on the Lord, but not only to wait on the Lord. Notice what He goes on to say because it gets even better. You see, because as he is waiting on the Lord, I I picture a Christian that is waiting on the Lord to act and waiting on the Lord to work, but they're spending a lot of time with the Lord. All of a sudden, his confidence began to reveal that he needed to wait on the Lord, but all of a sudden, his confidence led him to witness about the Lord. Oh, notice this. He says in verse number nine, I will praise thee, O Lord, among the, uh, the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. This is so, I love this here. I love that all of a sudden as he is doing all this, that he begins to be one who is waiting, but now he's becoming one who is witnessing. There are times whenever you're doing something, you strike up a conversation with someone, you're talking about, uh, and you might make the statement, oh, I've been there before. And all of a sudden, in the midst of you saying, oh, I've been there before, you go back in your mind to that time whenever you were waiting on God to work, and then you saw him work, so now what do you want to do? You want to witness about what he did. The psalmist here goes on in verse number eight. He said, or verse number nine, he says, I will praise the Lord among the people. All right, I'm going to witness of your goodness, of what you've done among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. You see, his, incompetent, his confidence, you can put it this way, his confidence led him to be enthusiastic and evangelistic. Hey, man, I can't believe you're going through all of that. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. The Lord's got this. Let me tell you what God has done. You're enthusiastic about the Lord having it in control. Now you want to tell somebody you're beginning to evangelize what God has done. 
Enthusiastic about it, evangelistic about it. Number three, his confidence led him to worship the Lord. Notice these words in verse number 10. For thy mercy is great under the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, that thy glory be above all the earth. You see, Psalm 57 is more than just my heart is fixed. You see, that's in the middle of all that. If you go to verses 1 through 6, you see everything that led him to make that statement, my heart is fixed. As you read verse number 7 and you travel on to verse number 11, you begin to see how he reacted and what he begins to reveal as his heart is fixed. And here's the truth. Here's the lesson we find in Scripture. In life, all of the things and the seasons within our life leads us to a decision. Are we going to rest in the Lord and have our heart fixed on God? Is our heart going to be fixed on our circumstances? Is our heart going to be fixed on our problems? The psalmist reminds us that it's much, much more joyful to find your heart fixed on God. And all of a sudden, because his heart was fixed on God, he began to worship the Lord, witness about the Lord, and wait on the Lord. When your heart is fixed on your circumstances, you're griping, you're complaining, you're fussing, and possibly quitting. And so in verses 1 through 6, we begin to see the circumstances. Verse number 7, he brings it to a point, and he makes the decision. And because of that decision, we see everything that he begins to express. And so I wonder tonight, where are you at in verse number 7? Some of you have entered in, and you're maybe in verse number 5. You feel as though the enemy's right there. The the troubles are big. the, The trials are heavy. The burdens are there. And you're approaching verse number 7 to where you're going to have to make that decision. What's your heart fixed on? Maybe you're already at verse number 7 and your heart's fixed, but what's it fixed on? Now all of a sudden the Lord's dealing with you and He's reminding you right this very moment, hey, fix your heart on me. Now's not a time to quit. I remember a message that Brother Johnny Pope preached. And he began to, to share a little bit of background and he began to share a conversation that was had and he said that there was a statement that was made, now is not time to go wobbly. Any of you ever heard that message? Great message. And I begin to think about that in the Christian life. I think we would all agree that our society is getting worse and worse. Times are getting bad. Now is not time for Christians to quit on God. Now is not time for you to say, Lord, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm done. No, now is time whenever this world needs to see some steadfast Christians. Some people who say, hey, my circumstances aren't great, but my God is great. Hey, my circumstances aren't good, but my God sure is good. Hey, hey, the troubles are heavy, but my God's taking care of all those things. My heart is fixed on you, Lord. Can I encourage you tonight? Fix your heart on the Lord. Lord, we do thank you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness tonight. We thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us this evening. Lord, some people are living in verses 1 through 6 right this very moment, and they're approaching in that season of life. What are they going to do? Where are they going to fix their heart? The Lord, verse number 7, determines what they're going to do in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. The Lord, if they fix their heart on you, they'll find themselves waiting on you and witnessing about you and worshiping you. The Lord, if they find themselves, in verse number 7, giving in to that temptation to fix their heart on their circumstances, their trials, their troubles. Oh, they might fall into the trap of griping and complaining and quitting on you. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Be with every single one of us tonight. We'll thank you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed tonight.
I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're in verses 1 through 6 and you've been going through it. Man, that, that heart's fixed on your circumstances and how bad it's been. You're approaching verse number 7. What you do in verse number 7 determines verse number 8, 9, 10, and 11. It's going to determine if you're going to worship the Lord, wait on the Lord, witness about the Lord. It's going to determine if you're going to begin to focus on those circumstances and gripe and complain and fuss and quit on God. Can I share with you, in seasons of those difficulties, those trials, the Lord never intended for us to bring it to a place where we quit on Him. In the midst of those difficult times, we can still see His goodness, His grace. In this psalm here, we see that David cries out at the very beginning, Lord, have mercy on me. Be merciful unto me. Can I encourage you? Maybe you're here tonight and you've been serving the Lord, but you've been doing it for the applause of man, and you've found that empty. And I'll tell you, it is empty. If you're trying to get a pat on the back from man, you'll find that they might give you a pat on the back on Monday, and on Tuesday they're angry with you. But as you yield your life to God, you'll find that as you rest in Him, you yield your life to Him, there's much, much, much pleasure in just serving the Lord simply because you want to serve Him. Not for the applause of man, but because of the approval of God. Could I encourage you as the piano plays... Where are you at tonight? Where's your heart fixed? I encourage you, fix it on God and look unto Him.